0: Welcome to creating a preferred future Thanks for joining us. This is Jan Spencer coming to you from the River Road neighborhood in Eugene, Oregon. This episode of Creating a Preferred Future will be a critique of capitalism and its most remarkable product, the consumer culture. What is an economy? What is economics? This is a definition of economy that I put together myself. I think it's actually pretty good. Economy is the structure, the mechanisms, and management for producing, distributing, and consuming products and services that sustain lives and lifestyles. And added to that, economics is the study of economy. Like all of us, I am surrounded by the economy. I do participate in the economy. And also, I strive to produce more of my own basic economic needs. And I choose a personal lifestyle with a comparatively small ecological footprint. I mentioned in another episode of Creating a Preferred Future... One of my own personal ideals is to limit my interaction with the mainstream economic system. In that episode about transforming my suburban property, I described how I do produce a great deal of food, energy, water, and aesthetics. Right here where I live, I'm looking out my window and that's what I see, is a term I like to use, home economics. We'll hear a little bit more about home economics later. To put it succinctly, I find the mainstream economic system to be a mixed blessing at best. There's no question that it does produce the goods. And there's no question our lives have been shaped and molded to fit the needs of this economic system. That shaping and molding We could call the consumer culture. From this perspective, the consumer culture is one of history's most successful social engineering projects. Before we go any further, allow me to just say a few words about creating a preferred future. The purpose of creating a preferred future is to encourage a movement of consciousness And action towards a society and economic system that exists within the boundaries of the natural world to bring out the best and positive human potential and to restore the integrity of the natural world. Yes, that's a tall order, but people can make these kinds of changes in their own lives, neighborhoods, and communities. Important to add, we are not only talking about a preferred future, we're also talking about a preferred present where those who care to, where those who self select, can begin to enjoy a preferred future sooner rather than later. I do have many friends who, in a sense, are already living at least part time in the preferred future because they choose to. Very good. Here are the premises of creating a preferred future. Human activity on planet Earth must fit within the boundaries of the natural world. Two, capitalism and the consumer culture are not the ticket for a peaceful, healthy, uplifted present and future. There are many, often surprising, allies and assets in any home, neighborhood, city, or town to work with for creating a preferred present and future. And finally, positive human potential is our greatest renewable resource. Creating a preferred future is a show and tell of people and projects all over the country in the act of creating a preferred future. And present. Okay, let's move on with our deconstruction of capitalism and the consumer culture. There are many capable critiques of capitalism and the consumer culture. This critique will add new content to this increasingly important discussion that I think have been overlooked to this point. First, what is the purpose of this deconstruction? To say it as briefly as possible, recall the premises of just a couple minutes ago. Capitalism and the consumer culture are not the ticket to a peaceful, healthy, uplifted, and sustainable future. The needs of capitalism are at odds with bringing out the best and positive human potential and living within the boundaries of the natural world. There's no mystery why people are far more often referred to as consumers rather than citizens. The ideal outcome for somebody listening to this critique would be that they become motivated to take some action. One action item would be to suggest to their friends they listen to this podcast. You can find this podcast on my website, suburbanpermaculture.org. Another great outcome would be people to take a closer look at their own lifestyle, such as food choices, transportation, housing, recreation, priorities for what they do with their time and money. We have important work to do for many reasons. The fact is that the products of capitalism or consumer culture and affluence provide us with surprising tools we can use in creative ways to repair the damage. We'll go into more details of these allies and assets in another episode of Creating a Preferred Future. Do we have time to make a gentle transition to a preferred future? I wouldn't bet on it, but the more people helping to bring about a preferred future in their homes, neighborhoods, and communities, the better. History is on the side of creating alternatives to capitalism and the consumer culture. And besides that, people deserve a healthy planet. People deserve respect. People deserve the opportunity to manifest their positive human potentials. The natural world has rights as well. An upcoming episode of Creating a Preferred Future will focus on what might a sustainable lifestyle look like? What might a sustainable economy look like? Would products and services cost the same Can the affluence and convenience most Americans expect be made to be Earth-friendly? Stay tuned. Almost every ideology has its ideals and mythologies, and capitalism has its share. From this perspective, it's hard to believe how so many people have bought in to the shallow claims of capitalism. In essence, capitalism and the consumer culture is a cargo cult. Capitalism and the consumer culture, a cult? Listen to this definition of cult in Wikipedia. A cult is a social group that is defined by its unusual religious, spiritual, or philosophical beliefs, or by its common interest in a particular personality object or goal my thoughts the philosophical beliefs are the mythologies of capitalism the common interest is a career to work hard and get ahead and climb the ladder and the goal is the cargo lots of stuff that's the reward let's listen to one of the most important philosophical beliefs one of the core mythologies of capitalism. It's the magic hand of the marketplace. Here's the definition. Pay close attention, please. To encourage and bring about the conditions through individual self-interest and freedom of production and consumption, the best interests of society as a whole is accomplished. I'll read that again. Through individual self-interest and freedom of production and consumption, the best interest of society as a whole is accomplished. I don't believe in the magic hand and that mythology at all. That's why I'm here. Because that kind of thinking is causing a lot of pain and suffering to both people and the natural world, that is not totally necessary. The freedom to produce and consume without limit is not in the best interest of society or the natural world. Of course, that is a subjective opinion, and I'd like to explain why I believe capitalism and the consumer culture are not in the best interest of people and planet. To me, the best interest of society is to bring out the best in positive human potential. Capitalism brings out the most in vanity and excess without being accountable. Capitalism as we know it could not exist without severe damage to the natural world. The natural world deserves care and respect in its own right, At the same time, humans also depend on a healthy natural world. Damage to the natural world damages human well-being and health at the same time. Let's continue with our critique. Here's another product of the magic hand. Something like the richest 1% of Americans own 40% of the nation's wealth. Meanwhile, the least well-off 40 percent of Americans own something like one-tenth of one percent of the nation's wealth. Do the math. My calculations tell me that three million Americans own 1,400 times as much stuff as 125 million Americans. I just read that almost a half a million American households don't have indoor plumbing. Millions of kids depend on free lunches at school. That deep chasm of economic ownership translates into political and social power and control. History shows, time after time, extreme differences between the well-off and the less well-off leads to social, political, economic instability. Safe to say, we are already seeing that instability manifesting in movements such as the 60s counterculture, the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter, and I think much of the base that supports Donald Trump. I think the movements favoring a healthy natural world along with climate change, activists will become more assertive and ambitious as time goes on with their methods of protest. All these movements, and these are only a few, exist because of the disequity and selfishness of those in control. All these groups have more in common with each other than they do with those in control. They should be working together, The best interests of society are not fulfilled by spending trillions of dollars on the military that exists primarily to protect the interests of the wealthy. Imagine the trillions spent on the military over the years if that money had instead been invested in environmental and social well-being. Every house could have indoor plumbing and kids would have enough food to eat at home. The interests that control the economy and politics control the media narrative. And their never-ending message is that what's good for the economy is good for the nation. And, of course, what's good for the economy is good for those who own it and their friends. There is minimal discussion about capitalism, profits, the need for economic growth, and the magic hand when i was a kid in the fourth grade in elementary school in dallas texas we were taught a couple of songs in music class one was titled texas our texas the other was you're from big d my oh yes texas our texas celebrated grandeur and empire you're from big d celebrated big homes where every house is a palace, because the settlers settle for no less. I can't remember a single class in public school that asked critical questions about capitalism and the consumer culture. Another mythology of capitalism, let's call it informed choice, and this mythology explains that give the buyer the information they need to make a responsible choice of what they'll buy in their best interests. Informed choice sounds like a good idea. Too bad it's far from reality. Let's dust off another word familiar with economists, but not used very often. And that word is external cost. The Daily News is full of stories about climate change, economic and political disequity, pollution, public health problems, foreign misadventures, and a whole lot more. These conditions and issues are all external costs. Few products provide the buyer with much of any useful information about what they're buying, where it came from, how it might have been fabricated, how it was transported, how to use it, what are the consequences of using it, how to dispose of it when you're finished with it. Here's a definition of external cost, according to Wikipedia. External cost is an economic activity that imposes a negative effect on an unrelated third party. It can arise either during the production or the consumption of a good or service. Pollution is termed an externality because it imposes costs on people who are external to the producer and consumer of the polluting product. Public health and the well-being of the natural world are oftentimes the victims of external costs. Also important to point out, that those external costs do not show up on the price of the product or the service. In other words, the price of a product or service does not tell an honest story about the product or service. Informed choice does not exist as long as there are external costs that don't show up on the price of the product or service. External costs are ubiquitous food, energy, transportation, shelter, recreation. This is Jan Spencer coming to you from the River Road neighborhood in Eugene, Oregon. The economic system is hardwired to be dishonest. For example, buying a car. The promotion for a car and the salesperson will play up its comfort, its power, style, desirability, warranty. But it doesn't explain that over 40,000 Americans die each year in car accidents and that cars cost hundreds of billions of dollars in property damage every year and hundreds of billions of dollars more in public health costs. Air and water pollution, road rage on crowded highways, A dispiriting urban landscape of pavement, billboards, noise, and garish architecture. Aircraft carriers with thousands of sailors on board to protect Mideast oil. Or the kitchen faucet on fire because of nearby fracking. You don't hear about these kinds of issues when you're looking for a car. And the price of the car does not acknowledge those external costs. You can research the external cost of gasoline online. Ask the question, what would be the price of a gallon of gasoline if all the external costs were factored in? The range might be $10, 15 20 $25 a gallon. At that price, we wouldn't have so many cars, and what cars we did have would be a lot smaller. We could go on a very interesting tangent right now which would ask, what would life be like if we had an honest economic system? We'll save that thought for another episode. Efforts to create a carbon tax are a timid effort to address one of the most notable of all external costs, that of carbon dioxide and fossil fuels and the role they play in bringing about climate change. And A carbon tax is an important but very small part of the overall effort to create an honest and accountable economic system. Food is a critical human need, and it's another area that contains its own set of extensive external costs. What can you say about an economic system and the society that puts up with it? that manufactures and actively promotes products known to damage people and planet. There's more money to be made from a potato by turning it into chips loaded with oil and salt and greasy french fries, especially when the manufacturer doesn't have to worry about paying the medical bills for those who eat those unfortunate potatoes. Junk food is an enormous public health problem in the United States. And if those problems in the United States weren't enough, United States junk food manufacturers like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Burger King, export their product all over the world, along with the public health problems. Junk food takes in soft drinks, burgers and fries, sugary cereals, all kinds of candy. You can go into almost any convenience store and it's like a museum of unhealthy junk food, oftentimes in supersized servings. Junk food contributes to obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, nutritional deficiencies, and more. Yet junk food Heavily marketed to children and adolescents is easier to access for most people than healthy food. Many countries that had few overweight children a generation ago now have lots of overweight children thanks to American junk food. Closely related to junk food is factory farming. First, allow me to describe what I mean by factory farming in this radio program. Factory farming includes a system of farming in which a lot of animals are kept in a small closed area in order to produce a large amount of meat, eggs, or milk as cheaply as possible. Another part of factory farming is the large mechanized farming system with many artificial inputs to raise the grain to feed the animals in those small closed feeding areas commonly referred to as a CFO, confined feeding operation. Something like 70 percent of the corn, barley, oats, and sorghum grown in the United States is consumed by animals for meat production, and you can add, at the same time, 75% of the world's soybeans are fed to livestock. About a third of all the arable land in the world is devoted to livestock, both for grazing and producing the grain that livestock eats in feedlots. Industrial-scale factory farming is loaded with external costs. Both the practice and the products clearly show the values and priorities of capitalism. We should also add that the people who buy the products need to take responsibility as well. Pesticides and herbicides are known to pollute air and water, damage and degrade public health, wildlife, and habitat. There's an anaerobic dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico near the mouth of the Mississippi River. Here's the first paragraph of an article found in the Nature Conservancy magazine describing that dead zone. Heavy rains and melting snows washed massive amounts of nutrients, particularly nitrogen and phosphorus, from lawns, sewage treatment plants, farmland, and other sources along the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico. Once in the Gulf, these nutrients, which are required for plant and crop growth, trigger algae blooms that choke off oxygen and water and make it difficult, if not impossible, for marine life to survive. The dead zone has costly commercial, environmental, and public health consequences. That dead zone is a striking example of external costs and how capitalism does business. Okay, it's time for a music break. Here's a song by one of my favorite groups from the 1960s, the Yardbirds. Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Page all served time with the Yardbirds. And the Yardbirds were also the precursor to Led Zeppelin. This song is titled The Shapes of Things. It's potent rock and roll and a strong message at the same time. Let's give it a spin. This is Jan Spencer coming to you from the River Road neighborhood in Eugene, Oregon. Let's take a closer look at confined feeding operations. A CFO is an industrial-scale livestock production in which a large number of chickens, cows, pigs, or other animals are confined in a closed-in often overcrowded for food production. CFOs produce a variety of byproducts that may impact environmental health, including large quantities of manure and associated gases which affect air, soil, and water quality. Confined feeding operations provide potential breeding grounds for disease that may spread from animals to humans, Antibiotics used in these operations have been linked to the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The conditions of these CFOs are far from natural and are a frequent target for animal rights activists. I was traveling several years ago in the southern San Joaquin Valley of California, one of the nation's most important agriculture areas. I stopped to take a look at one of the CFOs I saw. There were lots of cows in a small space, along with piles of manure and animal waste lagoons. It all smelled pretty bad. There was no greenery. Next to the drive that connected the facility with the road I was driving on was a sign that identified the CFO as being contracted with Land of Lakes brand of dairy products. The sign included the familiar Land of Lakes logo of the kneeling Indian maiden, proudly offering a Land of Lakes box of butter, and in the background, a beautiful lake with fir trees along the shoreline. The reality I was looking at was very different from the ideal. To say the advertising was misleading is an understatement. The burning of the Amazon rainforest is a well-known process for creating pasture for cows to graze to provide cheap beef for American fast food outlets that's only an appetizer for industrial agriculture and factory farming. You can find all kinds of books and articles critical of factory farming in your bookstore or online. Another myth of capitalism is its claim to be the most efficient way to allocate resources. Here's a more succinct and academic definition of economic efficiency from Investopedia. Economic efficiency is when all goods and factors of production in an economy are distributed or allocated to their most valuable uses and waste is eliminated or minimized. A standard dictionary defines efficiency as producing the most benefits with the least amount of waste, expense, or unnecessary effort. Capitalism as we know it is essentially the opposite of efficient. We devote a good bit of time in this episode of creating a preferred future with critique of automobiles, but they deserve every bit of it. The automobile is efficient in creating economic activity, for sure, but the cost is immense. As a mode of transportation, you'd have a hard time coming up with a transportation device that is more inefficient. The bigger the car, the less efficient in terms of energy, resources, public health, and the well-being of the natural world. The purpose of transportation is to move a person or a cargo from one place to another and ideally accomplish that with as little fuss as possible. An average person or cargo might amount to 150, 250, 300 pounds. A typical automobile would weigh three and a half, four, four and a half thousand pounds. As far as the energy to move the car is concerned, the cargo, the passenger, is insignificant. The vast majority of the energy to move a car is simply to move all that plastic and steel, and that is very inefficient. There's not much difference between a gasoline power car and an electric car. And besides that, if you're on a bicycle and hit by either, it feels about the same. Reasonable enough response to that critique would be, well, how else am I going to get to where I need to go without a car? And of course, for the majority of Americans, that's true enough. Because our cities, our towns, our housing are basically predicated on automobiles because, of course, there's more money to be made by designing our society, our civilization on automobiles. For the most part, urban planning is based on mobility rather than accessibility. Mobility, of course, means the capacity to go from place to place. Accessibility means you have the things you need Your shopping, your work, your school, your recreation close enough so you're not dependent on mobility. Sensible and efficient urban planning would focus on designing cities and towns that were not dependent on automobiles. Of course, we've already created cities and towns that are dependent on automobiles. What do we do about those places now? That's a good question, and many cities and towns all over the world are beginning to push back on cars, like Copenhagen, Paris, Barcelona, even cities and towns in the United States. We'll take a closer look at pushing back against cars in upcoming episodes of Creating a Preferred Future. Automobiles are an enormous expense, both at the personal level, but also for the city and the nation. Recall the external costs describing automobiles a little bit earlier in this episode. Studies have shown that for an average commuter, depending upon the size of their car, depending upon their job, that average commuter might work from the beginning of the year, into february march april even may simply to pay for the automobile the cost of the car the insurance the gas the repair and we won't even count the time lost in traffic all that time to pay for the automobile means time lost for friends family personal interests volunteer in the community for a good cause Suburbia is a partner with automobiles and they are both co-parents of a wide range of external costs and inefficiency. We'll save the history of suburbia for another time, but suffice to say right now, the existence of low residential density automobile dependent Resource-intensive suburbia has a lot to do with business influence on government policy, along with advertising to promote the consumer culture over the years. The square footage of living space for the average American is far greater than almost anywhere else in the world. Interesting to note other strongholds of suburban-style land use are also English-speaking countries like South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. And of course, in recent decades, with growing world affluence, many nations, many people all over the world look to American-style suburbia as their own dream. Here's one definition of suburbia from the Cambridge Dictionary Online. Suburbia, the outer parts of a town where there are houses, but no large stores, places of work, or places of entertainment. Suburbia comes in all shapes and sizes. I live in suburbia here in Eugene, Oregon, but it's very different from the suburbia I experienced when our family lived in North Dallas, Texas or a mid-40s neighborhood of detached houses in Houston known as the Heights. One of the common denominators of suburbia is single-family detached houses. A typical suburban house has more rooms than there are people living in that house. Of course, there's a kitchen but also frequently a living room, a den, could be a dining room. Bigger houses have more specialized functions. In general, the more specialized the functions in a house, the bigger the eco-footprint and the more inefficient that house is to accomplish its original purpose. And that original purpose, of course, is to be comfortable, safe, and secure. In addition to almost always being dependent on automobiles, those rooms in a suburban house need to have something in them. There's furniture, floor coverings, media and entertainment, granite countertops, appliances, bedroom suites, and these are only middle-income homes. Imagine the interiors of houses of 4, 5, 6, 7,000 square feet not to mention people who have multiple homes. I have an acquaintance with two homes that total something like seven or 8,000 square feet. Two people occupy these residents only part-time. There are an enormous amount of furnishings in both houses, and there's an enormous ecological footprint and inefficiency all that stuff really doesn't accomplish a whole lot. You can only sit in one chair at a time. You can only watch one TV at a time. You can only be in one house or one room at a time. And this person is only well off. They're not even rich. Providing a suburban home with furnishings and mobility is very inefficient in regard to energy and resources. There's a huge environmental, not to mention social, impact to suburbia. And it is an extremely important part of the American economy. Recall almost all the external costs described earlier. Energy, resources, time. They also apply to suburbia. The fences typical between properties make sharing amenities a difficult task, and of course, suburbia is well known for its deficiency of social cohesion. All these shortcomings of suburbia are a perfect fit for capitalism and the consumer culture. In an upcoming episode of Creating a Preferred Future, we'll take a look at a number of examples of repairing suburbia in terms of built infrastructure, social cohesion, and economics. Here's the final main point I want to make about the inefficiency of capitalism. It has to do with what is the purpose of so many jobs. Recall all the examples and discussion of external costs in this episode of creating a preferred future, including damage to public health and the natural environment. I've never heard or read anywhere anything remotely like this particular critique of capitalism even though it's easily recognizable and close to home because almost everybody participates. I'll start out with the punchline and then explain. Here it is. Tens of millions of jobs in this country exist to repair the damage caused by tens of millions of other jobs. Once again, The products and services of tens of millions of jobs exist to repair the damage to people and planet caused by the products and services of tens of millions of other jobs. Let's use cars again as our educational punching bag. Say a car hits a bike rider or a pedestrian. In a sense, all the jobs that contribute to manufacturing that car participate in that accident. There's the workers and administrative staff at the automobile assembly plant. There's designing the car, refining the gasoline, recycling the metal so it can be used again in the car, insuring the car, repairing the car, building the freeways, Fabricating the cell phone the driver of the car was distracted by when they hit the bike rider. Certainly, life is full of risk. Accidents do happen, but capitalism is responsible for a system that creates more risk and more consequences than necessary. The list for the supporting cast of that automobile that hit the bike rider is much, much longer than what I just touched on. Now imagine the injured bike rider. An ambulance arrives to take him to the hospital. The ambulance needs to be fabricated, and the ambulance uses the roads also. There's doctors and nurses in the ER and administrative staff at the hospital, and all the high-tech medical gear at the hospital. The hospital represents a huge investment in time, money, and expertise. The injured bike rider may require physical therapy. The pipelines that deliver the oil and gasoline to run the car require construction, repair, and maintenance. People need to clean up the occasional oil spill. I've only touched on a few of the jobs and services that cars require. There are many, many other products and services that enable the use of automobiles and contribute to the damage that cars are responsible for. Cars and trucks play a leading role in polluting air and water, costing hundreds of billions of dollars each year in the United States alone. And then there's climate change. Car and truck exhaust in the United States are responsible for almost 25% of total greenhouse gas emissions. What might 25% share of climate change costs look like? That's pretty hard to say, but it looks like a lot. And car and truck drivers in the United States can claim a disproportionate amount of the cost of climate change worldwide. Dealing with climate change is already proving to be very expensive and a very inefficient way to use money, especially when there are alternatives. Let's return to food. As mentioned, food production and in particular junk food creates many external costs to public health and the environment. Producing, manufacturing, transporting and retail of food employs literally millions of people. And just like the automobile workers, They can claim an appreciable amount of responsibility for the damage caused by junk food and factory farming. And then there are the hundreds of billions of dollars in public health costs directly related to junk food. Untold numbers of doctors, nurses, therapists, administrators bill their patients hundreds of billions of dollars to repair the damage of junk food tens of millions of jobs exist to repair the damage caused by tens of millions of other jobs and we're told this is a healthy economy the best of all possible economies the best way to allocate resources for the greatest good hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars along with billions of hours of time on the job spent to repair damage that is mostly avoidable. The entire setup just described is remarkably inefficient and there are many many other examples of inefficiency in this economic system I didn't even touch on. What would you add to that list? Our critique of capitalism is moving into the home stretch, not for lack of content, but for lack of time. Let's take a look at the marketplace. Ideally, the marketplace is where the buyer and the producer come together. The buyer is looking for a product or a service to address a need they have. The providers offer their goods and services. And offer reasons why the buyer should choose what they have to sell. That's all good. But the market as we know it has some big problems. Here's why. One reason is the dishonesty of external costs. The buyer rarely has the opportunity to make an educated choice about what they buy. And the price does not represent an accurate story about the product or service, such as where did the product come from, how was it produced, what are the consequences of using it, and what do you do with it when it's worn out? I am probably not the only person concerned that a healthy marketplace is increasingly being replaced by products and services that exploit and amplify human behavioral characteristics most people would say are not healthy or desirable. Vanity, excess, and selfishness are three words that come to mind. Humans are known to be impulsive, short-sighted, and thrive on novelty. Many billions of dollars in advertising exploit those characteristics, and from this perspective that corrupts the marketplace. The marketplace enables and profits from a steepening decline in the well-being of people and planet. Enough said about the marketplace for now. Like many people, perhaps a little old-fashioned I'm concerned about the dehumanizing aspects of the economy. Interactions between people cost money. And, of course, the economic system invests heavily on replacing people with machines and technology. I just tried to call my local water and electric utility with a question about my monthly bill. A recorded voice told me there were 39 people ahead of me. Technological innovation in the service of profit, vanity, and crass economic growth far too often comes at the expense of quality human relations and care for the natural world. The marketplace increasingly enables a steep decline in the well-being of people and planet. This critique could go for a lot longer. The myths of capitalism as we know it are important to debunk. The planet can't afford more of capitalism and the consumer culture. Capitalism completely depends on the dishonesty of externalizing the cost. There is no informed choice for making a responsible purchase. Millions of jobs exist to repair the damage caused by millions of other jobs. To say the economic system is inefficient is a huge understatement. Many hundreds of billions of dollars are spent each year in the United States to repair the damage caused by the economic system to people and planet, and much of that cost entirely avoidable. The marketplace is pumped up and distorted by hundreds of billions of dollars in advertising that promotes excess and vanity. At the same time, we have destabilizing social, political, and economic disequity, along with climate change and an already rumbling set of social and political movements that exist because the system is not working for them. If there was ever a time in human history for humans, and not just Americans, to make a great leap forward in how we see ourselves and the world around us, there's no better time than the present. There's no need to invent some new idea or game saving technology. Our greatest challenge is creating a new narrative. What is the goal of the human enterprise? I think a great place to start is considering the wisdom of the world's great spiritual traditions. This wisdom comes in many languages, points in history, and geographic locations. I see this wisdom as the point of departure for individual behavior And also the basis for an honest and sustainable economic system that serves the healthy goals of a healthy society. Here's the key points of that wisdom. Care for the natural world, modesty of lifestyle, service to the community, uplift of the spirit, and accountability for our own actions. How do we pay for our great leap forward? We'll go into more detail in a future episode, but for now this will suffice. We spend our own time and money with purpose, to live within the boundaries of the natural world and to bring out the best and positive human potential. We don't spend time and money on products and services that don't help us move towards a sustainable and uplifted future. Next, recall the hundreds of billion dollars spent each year on external costs. If we don't buy the products and services that damage people and planet, there's no new damage to repair. We can spend those many billions saved in positive ways instead. People can make these changes at home in their own lives with no permission required. There are many allies and assets to work with. Upcoming episodes of Creating a Preferred Future will go into more detail. This is Jan Spencer coming to you from Eugene, Oregon. You can contact me Check out my podcasts and find links to YouTube presentations and a 30-minute video of a site tour of my property. All that on my website, suburbanpermaculture.org. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us, and remember, be smart, be strong, be well, but don't be shy.